the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. In addition to covering the day's headlines, we're going to talk with Dr. Darius Daniels, author of Relational Intelligence, the people skills you need for the life and purpose you want. Dr. Daniels is the founder and lead pastor of Change Church. Uh, they're located in uh, New Jersey. He lives there with he, with he and his wife and their two sons. Uh, he um, has a doctorate from Fuller Theological Seminary. He speaks to national audiences and is the author of the book, Relational Intelligence, the People Skills You Need for the Life of Purpose You Want. We're also going to talk with Tom Jipping, Deputy Director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He's also a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the lethal legal legacy of Roe versus Wade beyond the effect of uh, legalizing abortion on demand all across the uh, uh, the states. Uh, we'll get into that with Tom Jipping later in the second hour of today's program. Taking a look at some of the headlines, Harvard Law School professor Alan Dershowitz delivering a spirited constitutional defense of President Trump at his Senate impeachment trial Monday night, flatly turned toward House impeachment managers and declared they had picked dangerous and wrong charges against the president, noting that neither abuse of power nor obstruction of justice was remotely close to an impeachable offense as the framers had intended. In a dramatic moment, the liberal constitutional law scholar reiterated that although he voted for Hillary Clinton, he could not find constitutional justification for the impeachment of a president for non-criminal conduct or conduct that was not at least akin to defined criminal conduct. He said that all future presidents who serve with opposing legislative majorities now face the realistic threat of enduring vague charges of abuse or obstruction and added that a long list of presidents have previously been accused of abuse of power in various contexts without being formally impeached. Dershowitz's um, presentation was arguably the high point of a series of arguments presented by the Trump defense team against the articles of impeachment at his Senate trial on Monday. Meanwhile, senators faced mounting pressure to summon John Bolton to testify at the trial after an excerpt from the formal uh, National Security Advisor's forthcoming book apparently leaked. According to the manuscripts, Trump told Bolton he had suspended aid to Ukraine in exchange for an investigation of the Bidens. The White House strongly denied that claim. At least four Republicans suggested they could buck GOP leaders and form a bipartisan majority to force the issue. Republicans have held a 53-47 majority and a mere majority vote would be required on the question of witnesses. Republican Senators Mitt Romney of Utah and Susan Collins of Maine appear to be the most persuaded by the need to call Bolton and hear from witnesses. It's been told that Trump's defense team will wrap up and did earlier today with just a few hours after the trial resumed at one o'clock p.m. Eastern time. The next phase of the trial involves 16 hours of written questions that the senators can submit to be answered by Democratic House managers and Trump lawyers. It will not start 
until Wednesday. Then there will be a vote on whether to hear more evidence or witnesses. LeBron James broke his silence on Kobe Bryant's death on Monday night, writing a heartfelt caption, uh, caption on Instagram and posting several photos of the late Los Angeles Lakers. The king started off his caption saying he wasn't ready to deliver the post, but here I go. Man, I'm sitting here trying to write something for this post, but every time I try, I begin crying again just thinking about you, niece Gigi, and friendship, bond, brotherhood we had. I literally just heard your voice Sunday morning before I left Philly to head back to L.A. Didn't think for one bit in a million years that would be the last conversation we'd have. I'm heartbroken and devastated, my brother. Other developments in the death of Kobe Bryant. Well, the State Department on um, Monday urged Americans to reconsider travel to Wuhan, China, the epicenter of the coronavirus, and said it ordered the departure of all non-emergency U.S. personnel and their families out of the country. The travel advisory increase from level two to level three comes as Chinese authorities continue to impose quarantines and travel restrictions in and around Wuhan, where the virus was first reported last year. At least 106 people have died. Nearly 2000 have been infected. The warning said travelers should avoid non-essential travel to China. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention also issued a level three warning to avoid all travel to China. There was no mention, however, of of travel from China. Well, the president's Middle East peace plan uh, was offered and it uh, extended uh, Palestinian conditional statehood. More on that later in the program. And Doug Collins um, challenging Kelly Loeffler for the Georgia Senate seat could set up something of a train wreck. House Democrats are voting to override the state right to work laws, boosting labor, uh, the labor movement and authoritarian Hillary Clinton slammed authoritarian and Trumpian Zuckerberg over Facebook's speech stance. Britain says China's uh, Huawei uh, won't be banned from its 5G network, raising red flags all across the fruited plain. And China counts 106 virus deaths. Uh, aided by its censorship as U.S. others move to evacuate and concerned veterans for America pushed uh, for U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. On this day in history, 1986, the space shuttle Challenger exploded 73 seconds after liftoff from Cape Canaveral, killing all seven crew members, astronauts Francis Dick Scobie, Michael Smith, Krista McAuliffe, Judith Resnick, Ronald McNair, Ellison Anziku, and Gregory Jarvis. On this day in history, 1915, the United States Coast Guard is created by President Woodrow Wilson. He signed a bill merging the Life-Saving Service and Revenue Cutter Service. On this day in 1956, Elvis Presley makes his first national appearance on Stage Show, a CBS program hosted by Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey. And on this day in 1960, the National Football League awards franchises to Dallas and Minneapolis St. Paul. 1973, the ceasefire officially goes into effect in the Vietnam War, a day after signing of the Paris Peace Accords by the United States, North Vietnam and South Vietnam. President Trump's lawyers hit the Senate floor on Monday for the second day of defense arguments in his impeachment trial amid what Democrats called a bombshell from a forthcoming book by the president's former national security advisor, John Bolton. The Bolton book wasn't a direct topic during the arguments, but the president's lawyers addressed the underlying allegation that the president withheld military aid from Ukraine for weeks to pressure the former Soviet Republic to investigate dealings there by former Vice President Joe Biden and his son, Hunter. The president's lawyers also made their strongest case yet as to why Trump had reason to inquire about the Bidens and Burisma, the Ukrainian energy company where the younger Biden had a lucrative job 
from 2014 to 2019. Democrats' allegations that Trump pressured Ukrainian President Zelensky by putting a hold on the $391 million in aid was the basis for the House December 18th impeachment of the president on charges of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, neither of which is a federal crime. Some highlights from that sixth full day. We'll share that with you when we come back from our break in just a moment. But this was the sixth full day of the Senate impeachment trial in which House Democrats are asking the Senate to convict the president and remove him from office. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Dr. Darius Daniels. He is the author of Relational Intelligence, the People Skills You Need for the life and purpose you want. Well, President Trump's lawyers hit the Senate floor on Monday for the second day of defense arguments. Today was the last of their three days. Some of the um, highlights, the New York Times reported Sunday that uh, John Bolton's upcoming book will say Trump told him, the national security advisor at the time, that he would keep a hold on the military aid to Ukraine until that country investigated the Biden's dealings there. Uh, Portions of the Bolton book apparently were leaked to the Times. The White House has said a copy of the book since December um, has had a copy since December 30th for a national security review and Clinton and uh, clearance rather titled The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir. The book is set to be released on the 17th of March. The president responded shortly after midnight on Twitter, asserting at one point early on Monday, I never told John Bolton that the aid to Ukraine was tied to investigations into the Democrats, including the Bidens. In fact, he never complained about this at the time of his very public termination. If John Bolton said this, it was only to sell a book. Well, Senate Minority Leader Charles Schumer had a far different take on Monday morning before the Senate convened for the impeachment trial at one. This is stunning. It goes right to the charges against the president. Ambassador Bolton essentially confirms the president committed the offenses charged in the first article of impeachment, Schumer told reporters. He said the excerpt of uh, Bolton's book is evidence of a widespread cover-up and shows the need to call acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney as a witness at the impeachment trial. Another outstanding event of the day, the president's lawyers hit back both directly and indirectly on the Bolton manuscript. Nothing in the Bolton manuscript would rise to the level of an abuse of power or impeachable offense. That's a quote from Alan Dershowitz, the Harvard law professor and Democrat who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, but is now part of the Trump legal team. He also opposed the Clinton uh, impeachment, saying there were not grounds under those circumstances either. That is a is. That is clear from the history. That is clear from the language of the Constitution, he added in his assessment. Former Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi, now on Trump's defense team, laid out a timeline for potential conflicts of interest entangling Joe Biden, who oversaw the Obama administration's Ukraine policy, and his son Hunter, who held a lucrative seat on the board of Burisma, the Ukrainian energy company, saying the United Kingdom's serious frauds office opens a money laundering investigation into the oligarch and his company, Burisma, Uh, The very next month, April of 2014, according to a public report, Hunter Biden quietly joins the board of Burisma. Remember, early 2014 was when Vice President Biden began leading Ukraine policy. She noted that public records show the younger Biden's business partner, uh, also a Burisma board member, met with the elder Biden at the White House two days before the company announced Hunter Biden had joined the board. Not even 10 days after Hunter Biden joined the board, British authorities seized $3 million in British bank accounts connected with the oligarch and owner of Burisma. Well, she went on from there, but laid out in detail the concerns that the president and others from the previous administration had expressed. 
uh, in that uh, conflict of interest. Another development on uh, Monday in September at the first public hearing of the Ukrainian matter, uh, Adam Schiff, who's lead, uh, leading the House impeachment managers, mischaracterized the Trump Zelensky phone call and when criticized for it, called it a parody during his presentation to the Senate. Uh, Hirschman was not going to let the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee off easily. Remember the fake transcript that Manager Schiff read when he was before the Intelligence Committee? Hirschman asked senators his mob gangster-like fake rendition of the call. Well, I've prosecuted organized crime for years, Hirschman said. The type of description of what goes on, what House Manager Schiff tried to create for the American people is completely detached from reality. He went on from there. Another development in day six, yesterday's a hearing on the <clears throat> Senate floor. Ken Starr, whose uh, investigation as independent counsel led to the 1998 impeachment of President Clinton, gave a mixture of a law professor's lecture and a warning of what the power of impeachment was has wrought. Like war, impeachment is hell, he said, or at least presidential impeachment. Uh, he told senators sitting as jurors in the trial. He noted that this uh, was not the first House resolution of impeachment against Trump, only the first to pass. Representative Al Green pushed three impeachment resolutions to a floor vote, all of which were defeated. Representative Maxine Waters began in 2017 to promote the Impeach 45 movement. Most of the seven House impeachment managers or prosecutors supported either impeaching Trump or beginning an impeachment inquiry against him. <clears throat> long before the call with Ukraine's leaders that prompted the current case. Starr said impeachment should be a very important protection against serious wrongdoing. Despite having brought the case against Clinton that led to his acquittal, Starr said presidents are to serve out their terms unless there is a national consensus for their removal. And finally, before his legal team resumed its case on Monday morning, uh, the president sent several tweets, but he mostly retweeted Uh, During the arguments, what was being said on the floor at one point, the president inquired why Schiff, who is leading the impeachment managers, hasn't made public the full transcript of testimony by Michael Atkinson, the intelligence community's inspector general to the House Intelligence Committee behind closed doors. Atkinson took the anonymous whistleblower's complaint that rose out arose rather out of uh, Trump's July 25th phone call to Ukraine. The president tweeted Schiff must release the IG report without changes or tampering, which is said to be yet further exoneration of the impeachment hoax. He refuses to give it. Does it does he think um, uh, does it link rather him to whistleblower? Why is he so adamant? Uh, Later, the president gave a programming note to his Twitter followers saying Senate hearing on the impeachment hoax starts today at one. Well, the uh, hearing be, uh, continued today. The, um, the defense for the president took a mere 10 hours as opposed to the 22 hours taken by uh, the House managers. Now it will go for 16 hours in which the uh, senators have an opportunity to pose their questions through the uh, chief justice who is presiding over this trial. They will have to write their questions out. He will read the questions to either the defense or the House managers. They will have an opportunity to respond. Now, each side gets eight hours. That could be eaten up by long answers. I'm not uh, sure if there are limits on the amount of time an answer uh, must be given. But nonetheless, that's the next phase. After those 16 hours or whatever uh, semblance of that either side takes, maybe the the Democrats take five hours, the Republicans three, we don't know. But after that, then comes the vote as to whether or not there will be um, an opportunity for witnesses to be called. Um, so it's a, a rather interesting next step in this um, this whole process. Meanwhile, there is some question as to whether or not the GOP has sufficient votes to block impeachment witnesses. 
Um, Mitch McConnell seemed to indicate that at this point there aren't sufficient votes. The White House's plan for a speedy impeachment trial were thrown into some doubt with uh, Senate Republicans on Tuesday floating competing proposals on how to deal with new explosive revelations from ex-National Security Advisor John Bolton. The Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell told Republicans he doesn't have enough votes to block the calling of impeachment witnesses. GOP senators were all over the map on Tuesday as President Trump's defense team called Bolton's manuscript inadmissible and warned against opening the door to new wildcard information in the ongoing trial. Democrats have repeatedly called for Bolton to testify. A source with knowledge of McConnell's comments confirmed that the Kentucky Republican told people in a private meeting on Tuesday they did not have the votes to block impeachment witnesses. The Wall Street Journal first reported those comments. Meanwhile, Senator James Langford called for Bolton's unpublished manuscript to be made available for senators to read in a classified, sensitive, compartmented information facility to understand what Bolton was alleging. His proposal got an ally in influential Senator Lindsey Graham, who called the idea a reasonable solution. Some senators suggested that Bolton just spill the beans at a news conference on the sidelines of the impeachment trial. The Wall Street Journal has called for a John, Mr. Bolton, to just come forward. Just tell the public what you know. Senator Ron Johnson said, I think that actually would be a smart thing. I'd encourage John to do that without involving the trial. Well, of course, that is not going to sell books. So he's not likely to do that because he's attempting to sell books. Well, the creative suggestion came after The New York Times reported Bolton's manuscript included a claim that the president explicitly linked a hold on military aid to Ukraine to an investigation into Joe and Hunter Biden. Uh, Trump told Bolton in the um, in August, according to the transcript of Bolton's forthcoming book reviewed by The Times, that he wanted to continue freezing the $391 million in security assistance to Ukraine. The stunning leak, which Johnson called suspicious, has allowed House impeachment managers to ramp up their calls for Bolton to testify. The Democrats warned that if Senate Republicans quashed witnesses, they'd engage in a cover-up, especially since they said the book eventually would come out. That left some Republicans searching for an off-ramp that would allow Bolton's allegations to air out while not derailing the entire Senate impeachment trial. A Bolton news conference or a manuscript reading seemed like two potential middle grounds floated on Tuesday. Other senators, including Pat Toomey, re-upped the idea of witness reciprocity as a way to hear from Bolton, but also gain testimony from Hunter Biden or Joe Biden in return. But Democrats repeatedly have shut down making any deals with the GOP for any of the Bidens, saying the father and son were just a distraction from charges against the president. His defense team seemed to suggest that that was not the case and offered it, uh, offered testimony for members of the previous administration who had also expressed concern. Other battle lines seemed to hard, harden, excuse me, on one end, the calls for witnesses led by Senator Mitt Romney got only stronger. Meanwhile, Trump loyalists were quick to shut down the talk of prolonging the trial a minute longer than necessary. Senator John Cornyn said that he's not in favor of subpoenaing the uh, Bolton manuscript. I think we know all we need to know. Senator Rand Paul suggested Bolton was a disgruntled, fired employee with a motive of money. The Democrats have spent a lot of time imagining what the president's motives are. Someone ought to spend time imagining what John Bolton's motives are, other than making millions of dollars to trash the president. Senator Kevin Kramer said opening door um, on uh, even the manuscript could lead to more nonsense. And it continues. Today was the last day of the president's defense. Tomorrow, or at least Wednesday, 
the senators have their chance. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Dr. Darius Daniels. Relational intelligence, the people skills you need for the life of purpose you want. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, today, the word friendship is casually tossed around. My next guest says, too casually. Author, teacher, and pastor, Dr. Darius Daniels, in his new book, Relational Intelligence, The People Skills You Need for the Life of Purpose You Want, uses Jesus' model of choosing the 12 disciples as an example of the importance of impactful relationships. He's convinced there's no such thing as a casual relationship, a meaningless uh, uh, connection. In relational intelligence, he gives readers an action plan for getting smart about every relationship, from friendships to work teams to marriages and to ministry contacts. Spiritual, physical, financial, emotional, and professional progress is both affected and impacted by the people we allow to be a part of our lives. Well, Dr. Darius Daniels is the founder and lead pastor of Change Church. It's a vibrant diverse con- uh, congregation with a doctorate in ministry from Fuller Theological Seminary. Dr. Daniel speaks to national audiences. He uh, lives with his uh, family in New Jersey. He joins us today to talk about his uh, book, Relational Intelligence, The People Skills You Need for the Life of Purpose You Want. Dr. Daniels, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on the program today. Well, thank you. You know, we're familiar with uh, IQ, you know, your intelligence. We're familiar with EQ, emotional intelligence. But define for us relational intelligence and why that's important uh, in how we connect with other people. Yeah, so I'll answer it backwards. I don't know how much that shows about my IQ. But (laughs) (laughs) But but, a PhD um, helps. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so the idea is this. Um, You mentioned it earlier. There is no area of our life that is not impacted by our relationships. And what I begin to see in my own personal life and also professionally, I begin to see a trend among people I was serving and helping that people's greatest joy and greatest pain came from the same place. Mm. And that was relationships. So therefore, for me, relationship management isn't about relationship management. It's about life management. You can't do life well without it. You can't do leadership well without it. And you can't uh, practice our faith well without it. The great commandment, loving your neighbor as yourself, is lived out in the context of relationships. So for me, I feel like if something is that consequential to our life, we can't be unintentional in the way that we manage. Mm -hmm. And this whole idea of relational intelligence, it's really about being more intentional, about stewarding the relational aspect of our life well. It's too important for us to be unintentional in the way that we manage relationships. You know, it's interesting. I think for many of us, we imagine that our relationships, we just sort of stumble into them. We're not very thoughtful about them. Uh, We're sort of stuck with the people our life circumstances happen to bring into our orbit. What do you say about that in terms of uh, relational intelligence and being intentional really selecting and understanding the nature of how we relate to the people, some of whom we have chosen, but many of whom just happen to be uh, in close proximity. (laughs) Right. I, I agree. This is what I would say. I would say, to some degree, a person may not be able to control who's in their life. Mm-hmm. For example, like one category of relationships is 
that I mentioned in the book is a category called associates. And these are relationships that are developed based on intersecting schedules or common interests where we work together, we go to school together, or our kids play on the same team together. And as a result of that, we, we're kind of around each other all the time. So I may not be able to control to some degree who is in my life. But what I can control is what place I allow them to occupy mm. and what influence I allow them to have over me. That's and that's good. really what this is all about. Yeah. You start in the first part of the book defining relationships. You mentioned one of them, associates. Those are those people that we we you know, kind of fall into relationship with. But there are four categories, friends, associates, assignments, and advisors. Briefly define what they mean and to what degree they are likely to have influence in and uh, in our lives and um, how we control the degree to which that's the case. Yeah, well, you're right. The, the friendship category to me is probably, um, I'm going to say the friendship category is, is probably head and shoulders above the the rest in terms of how consequential it is in a person's life. It is an area. I feel like if we don't, it will not go well. Life won't go well if we get this area wrong. Like I think uh, Proverbs says, one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. Mm. And I feel like um, one of the reasons this relationship is is so um, significant is Everyone else will get some of your time, they may get your talent, they may get your gifts, but friends actually get you. And by that, I mean, we should live authentically with everyone. But friends, with friends, you've cultivated the kind of relationship that you can be transparent with. You're able to um, receive deposits, um, you're able to make deposits and receive deposits in that relationship because there's going to be a degree of uh, reciprocity. Whereas when you look at the associate relationship, there may not be the chemistry or there may not be the character that is necessary to cultivate a friendship. The assignment category is a little different, and um, and it really just speaks to people that you mentor, men, that you mm-hmm. add value to, that you co- and it may not be a formal mentoring relationship. Like there's peer mentorship where you can add value to someone's life in the context of a friendship. But I do believe, especially if you're a person of faith, you should be in some way adding value to others. And um, I heard one uh, leader put it this way, do for some what you wish you could do for all. And um, that's what we mean by assignments. And the last category is advisors. And that is really referring to people that mentor, coach, guide you so that you have someone besides you looking out for you. I believe mentorship gives you wisdom without the pain of experience. Mm, That's good. That's good. Now, you use Jesus' model of choosing the 12 disciples as an example of the importance of the impact that relationships uh, can have. We can, for the most part, choose our friends, others we are in association with, in the same way that Jesus associated with people who were not part of his inner circle. And so in being intentional, um, we hold those that are closest to us uh, close and others we try to influence in, in positive ways, recognizing sort of where they fit in these categories. Yeah, it, it's exactly right. You know, I wish I could talk to you before I finished the book. I think you just say it better than I did. <laughs> no. But, uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah, so it's so spot on. 
personal point. So when I look at the way Jesus kind of managed, and I know hearing this will create a little bit of apprehension in people, but this is what I've seen. It seems to me that Jesus loved everyone biblically without condition, Mm -hmm. that he valued everyone equally. So he valued the beggar as much as he did Nicodemus or Zacchaeus, that we're all inherently of equal value in the eyes of God. But I can see without a doubt Jesus did treat people differently, even within the context of not better or worse, but different in the context of the 12 disciples. Within his relationships with them, there's a group of people historians call the inner circle, mm-hmm. Peter, James, and John. And he, he managed his relationship with those three in a way that was different than the other 12. He took those three to the Mount of Transfiguration with him. So when he reveals his divinity, they get to see that. And then when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, we see this great expression of his, of his humanity and he's overwhelmed and filled with anxiety. They get to go there. He didn't take doubting Thomas there, <laughs> but he did take Peter, James, and John. And so it is this idea that you do have to align your expectations in relationships, but you also have to be strategic about your investments. And that's what Jesus did, made strategic investments. And in, not in practice, but in principle, I think it's important for us to do the same, because if we don't, those that mean the most to us will end up getting the least from us. Mm, that's, that's good. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, I'd like to talk about the phrase that uh, Dr. Darius, uh, Dr. Daniels coins, purpose partners. I, I love that. Uh, the book is titled Relational Intelligence, The People Skills You Need for the Life of Purpose You Want. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. And yeah, we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Darius Daniels. He's the author of Relational Intelligence, The People Skills You Need for the Life of Purpose You Want. He joins us from New Jersey, where he lives with his family and is the pastor of Change Church, a vibrant, diverse congregation. Now, one of the phrases I love that you coin um, is the phrase, um, what is it, purpose partners, which sort of describes what you're, you're talking about and being intentional in the people that we hold closest to us. Can you fill that out a bit more, or is that a, a, a fair description of, of purpose partners? Listen, next time before I write my next book, I'm calling you. <laughs> <laughs> Without a doubt. <laughs> It's going to be a much better book. Yeah, <laughs> I, I doubt but, that. <laughs> <laughs> but but spot on. Yeah, it is. So it's it's the idea that this that um, that in some way, and I'm not framing. I don't want to frame relationships as transactional in this sense. But in some way, relationships are either helping us become someone that God wants us to become and or produce something that God wants us to produce. And so when I look at my life, I would say um, that my light, that my formation has been greatly impacted by the people that were in it, that it was relationships that shaped and formed and groomed and developed me um, into a certain kind of, and what continued to develop me into a certain mm-hmm. kind of person. But also, um, take something like this book. It's because of relationships that I was able to produce this book, the experiences of others, the insight of others, the help of others. And so relationships do more than provide us with company. Yeah. 
They help us carry out our calling. Now that's good. You write that, and you touched on this a moment ago, that relationships should be covenantal and not transactional. Define the difference and why it's important uh, in uh, in developing one's relationships and, and what that has to do with casual uh, friendship, if such a thing exists. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, this is what I feel like. I feel like when we use the term transactional, the focus primarily becomes on Let's, let's use the friendship category. The focus primarily becomes on what kind of friends do I have. When a relationship is covenantal, the focus is on not just what kind of friends do I have, it's what kind of friend am I being. Mm. So the idea is a commitment, and that's what I think like love is, agape love. It is an unconquerable benevolence. It is a commitment to say, I am going to do what is in your best interest, and I am going to bring my best self to this relationship because of a commitment, because of a covenant that I've made with God in terms of the way I want to add value to people's life, not necessarily some transactional relationship that I have with you, meaning if you do this, I'll do that, and if you do that, I'll do this. And so I really feel like um, that's just language that we use to describe what love looks like, in the con- what agape love looks like. Yeah in the context of a relationship. In Relational Intelligence, you introduce readers to a man called Terrence Alexander, and you talk about the impact he made on your life. It's a great example of what you're describing. Tell us about your relationship with Terrence Alexander. That's amazing, because this is what I love about the book, about Terrence's story. Terrence's story, so it's almost like we would want to put everybody in a neat little category that I've laid out in the book. This is a friend, this is an associate, this is, a, this is an assignment, this is a, an advisor. Well, that's not necessarily the case. It get, this gets messy sometimes. And so Terrence was a friend of mine that I met in college that also became an advisor. I mean, we were close to the same age. There was no formal mentoring relationship, but he was hugely instrumental, not only in my spiritual formation, But also, I went through a really emotionally challenging period during the first year that I met him and battled a little bit with depression. And he was, I mean, he would make himself available to me. And so he was just an invaluable resource to me. And he helped walk me through that really difficult season, helped me clarify my sense of calling, and was a great encouragement for me to pursue that calling. Because I had all plans, all plans and all intentions to go to law school. I was supposed to be in a courtroom and not a church. But <laughs> God had other plans. And um, he was a advisor in the context of a friendship. That's, that's so good. You write that relationship management is virtually ignored by the church. Um, what role should the church play in helping to nurture healthy understanding of relationship, and then to encourage healthy relationships? I think it should play a huge role. As I said earlier, I think it is relationship management is part of what it means to love our neighbor well, that if we don't manage relationships well, we aren't loving our neighbor well. And I feel like each church kind of has to figure out contextually what this looks like. But I feel like if we don't get this part right, you don't get church life right. And if you don't get this part right, you don't get family life right. And if you don't get family life right, you don't get community life right. You don't get community life right. You don't get city life right, state life right, country life right, and the world life right. So it has huge implications 
And um, I think sometimes unintentionally the, the church can simply focus on improving people's morals and and not branch out mm-hmm. to more what the Bible has to say about people's life. Like sometimes I, I think we can unintentionally just assume that if everyone lives quote unquote right, then that means everyone lives well. And I just believe morals are where we start and maybe where we start. Well, relationship with God is where we start. That's going to flesh itself out in morals, but God wants to do more than make us right. He wants to make us well. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, final part of your book, and there are four parts that go into much greater detail than our conversation. uh, It's uh, focuses on assessing our relationships and asking the question you've referenced several times. What kind of friend am I and a model for healthy relationship building and then a way to assess how is it uh, how is it going? This is an important part of the book because it it gives us practical steps to take to kind of assess where we are in relationship with other people and how uh, how I am with other people in relationship. Without a doubt, and um, I think all of us not all but a lot of us um, are probably how can I be so busy um, in relationships that we don't have the time or take the time to reflect on Mm -hmm. the relationships. And I think that is the heart and the core of that part of the book that you're talking about, that this is way too important just to work in it. You've got to pause and reflect and assess you and others to make sure you're working on it. Well, that certainly was the challenge that I'm taking away from the book, Relational Intelligence. And uh, we'll take it home and reread and contemplate some of the aspects that uh, you highlight in the book. Dr. Daniels, thank you so much for talking with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Again, Dr. Darius Daniels is the author of Relational Intelligence, the people skills you need for the life of purpose you want. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. Note the T in Liberty. Coming up uh, this hour, we'll talk with Tom Jipping. He's deputy director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He's also a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the lethal legal legacy of Roe versus Wade. He'll join us later this hour. Well, sprawling lines were forming overnight in the New Jersey in the Jersey Shore destination of Wildwood in anticipation of the president's campaign rally that uh, began late this afternoon in a show of support by the president's faithful amid the bruising impeachment fight back in Washington. As I mentioned in the first hour, the president's defense team offered their closing arguments earlier today. It now goes to the senators. They have an opportunity to pose questions to the House managers and to the president's defense team. Uh, Each side, Democrats, Republicans, will have eight hours to pose their questions, which will not be given directly to those uh, to whom the questions are being asked, but will be read by the chief justice of the uh, Supreme Court. Those questions will have to be written And they will be read out by the chief justice to either the defense or to the House managers. This is a very different uh, sort of uh, presentation by the U.S. Senate. This is a more august body. They are required. The House was not to take an oath of impartiality. They are required to um, be the more deliberative body. Their charge is to review the case that's being made by the House and determine whether or not the case is made sufficiently to move forward with removing the president. Well, all of that is going on, um, and the president is right now involved in this Jersey Shore 
uh, rally that's taking place. Well, the scene is striking considering Jersey's political reputation as a blue state. But as Jeff Van Drew suggested earlier in the day, the southern part of the state where Trump is heading may be more of a MAGA-friendly area. And that's, of course, make America great again. South Jersey's forgotten about sometimes. Van Drew, a former Democrat who switched parties to become Republican after the House impeachment vote that he opposed. He represents much of South Jersey, plans to accompany the president uh, and pocket a presidential endorsement in the process. There are people that are excited, homemade signs, all kinds of activities. People are camping out, just thousands and thousands of them. Uh, he claimed over the weekend it was uh, his understanding that 100,000 ticket requests had been submitted for a that holds 7,500. The actual number of rally attendees is unclear, although they probably have a better count now since the rally is ongoing. The campaign reportedly will set up a large TV outside for the overflow crowd to watch. The campaign officials for the president gleefully shared video of the crowds lining up overnight hours before the rally scheduled. The defiant challenge is a preview of what's to come with the president all but certain to use his appearance on the boardwalk to strike at his uh, political targets with the precision of a seasoned skee-ball bowler. Uh, local reports said the line started forming on Sunday afternoon, had grown to hundreds by early Tuesday morning. Counter demonstrations, of course, are always being planned. Cape May County Indivisible said on Facebook that nearly 30 groups would assemble to peacefully protest the rally. We feel a moral obligation to show up, to take a stand, rejecting the racism, bigotry, misogyny, violence and corruption of this administration, they said in a statement. Martin Luther King uh, III is expected to speak at that demonstration. Other Democratic groups also are planning a protest. The rally comes as the president's Senate impeachment trial has come to an end, or at least the defense has come to an end with his defense team wrapping up their opening arguments shortly before the rally began. The president faces two articles of impeachment, alleged abuse of power and obstruction of Congress for his administration's efforts to pressure Ukraine to launch an investigation into the Bidens. Uh, Trump denies any quid pro quo, but the saga took another turn this week when reports surfaced that ex-National Security Advisor John Bolton's forthcoming book claims the president linked the aid to the sought-after Biden probe. The aid was eventually delivered with uh, internal concerns about the holdup. Meanwhile, the president uh, today called for a two-state solution to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as he unveiled the... let me start that over. As he unveiled the details of his administration's much-awaited Middle East peace plan. Won't gain much traction, though, I'm guessing. The president announced the proposal alongside Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu during remarks in the East Room of the White House. My vision presents a win-win situation for both sides, he said. Today, Israel has taken a giant step toward peace. He later tweeted a map of the proposed state of uh, Palestine. While the president and Netanyahu praised the plan as a way toward ending the decades long conflict between the Israelis and Palestinians. Odds of the peace plan taking shape are long given that the Palestinians have preemptively rejected the plan. This is a great deal, Trump said, and the Palestinians may not have this opportunity ever again, end quote. Well, he acknowledged he's setting out toward a goal that has eluded every U.S. president in modern times, but claimed uh, those prior efforts were too vague and short on critical details. He declared his plan is the most detailed proposal ever put forward. All prior administrations from President Johnson have tried and failed, he said. In the past, even the most well-intentioned plans were light on details. He added, there's nothing tougher than this one. We have an obligation 
uh, to humanity to get it done. Well, Netanyahu, who faces a pretty tough reelection in March with corruption scandal looming, used his time at the dais to praise Trump's plan and how it's beneficial to uh, Israeli sovereignty and security. Well, the Israeli leader added that past deals had not had the right balance between Israeli security and Palestinian aspirations. You have charted a brilliant future for Israelis and Palestinians toward a lasting peace, he said. For decades, that peace has proved elusive. He added, it's a great plan for Israel. It's a great plan for peace. Well, White House officials described the plan as realistic and said Israel is prepared to act. According to White House officials, the plan calls for a two-state solution, including the state of Israel and the future state of Palestine. Under the plan, the Palestinians would have to reach certain benchmarks to achieve a state. Those benchmarks include rooting out terrorism, stopping what they call play to slay, implementing steps toward free speech and other political reforms. The plan is a basis for negotiations with Israel. Trump officials say claiming many of the Palestinians red lines are met, including their calls for a Palestinian state and a capital in parts of eastern Jerusalem. The vision calls for more than doubling the amount of territory the Palestinians uh, control. This plan will double Palestinian territory, set the capital of the Palestinian state in eastern Jerusalem, where the United States will happily open an embassy, he said. Our vision will end the cycle of Palestinian dependence on charity and foreign aid. The plan also includes a map of a contiguous Palestinian state in the West Bank with a proposed tunnel to connect the West Bank and Gaza Strip. There would also be land swaps south of Gaza to give the Palestinians more territory. This is the first time Israel has agreed to a Palestinian state with defined borders. A small strip of land between the Egyptian border and the proposed land swap areas south of Gaza would remain Israeli territory and be subject to Israeli security control. This was requested by Egypt as a buffer against cross-border terrorism. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back, and later we'll hear from Tom Jipping. We'll talk about the lethal legal legacy of Roe v. Wade. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to... You're listening to the the Georgie Show. See, I make it a habit during the breaks on many occasions to go into the engineer's booth with the sole purpose of annoying Clark. And then I can't seem to pull myself together. I apologize to you, the listeners, not so much to Clark. And I learned a new skill that I could add to the repertoire that I didn't even know kind of bothered him. I click my nails on the... <laughs> on the table and that that bothers him he's never told me before until now now i have an incentive to perfect clicking my nails on the table i kind of like that clark is that what does it anyway okay back to business coming up later in fact our next segment we'll talk with tom jipping deputy director of the edwin meese the third center for legal and judicial studies we'll talk about the lethal legal legacy of roe versus wade that goes right to the heart of liberty and the, the meaning and purpose of the Constitution. So we'll get into that with him shortly. Well, the State Department on Thursday last gave visa officers more power to block pregnant women from visiting the United States and directed them to stop so-called birth tourism or trips designed to obtain citizenship for their children. Uh, you wait to come to the country while you're expecting, you stay, you have the child here, they become a U.S. citizen. Well, the administration is using this new rule, which takes effect on Friday, to push consular officers um, abroad to reject women they believe are entering the United States, specifically to gain citizenship for their children by giving birth. Now, if their children are here 
and they're U.S. citizens, then their mothers really should stay to raise them. Well, the visas covered by the new rule are issued to those seeking to visit for pleasure, medical treatment, or to see friends and family. Well, it's not clear whether birth tourism is a significant phenomenon or anchor babies lead to substantial immigration, but many conservatives believe both are serious issues. And the Trump administration has repeatedly uh, moved to... um, uh, assure conservative immigration concerns, which the president um, has often made reference to. Well, the State Department officials holding a briefing for reporters under the condition of anonymity, which seems a little odd to me, failed to provide an example of how birth tourism presented a national security risk, although that may not be the issue. But both the State Department and the White House said that it did. Well, the birth tourism industry is also rife with criminal activity, including international criminal schemes. That's a quote from the Assistant Secretary of State for Consular Affairs and a final rule, uh, Carl Reich. Well, consular officers were already unlikely to grant visas to women they believe were traveling here solely to give birth. Those officers won't be required to ask every woman if she's pregnant, but they will be expected to apply additional scrutiny if, through the course of an interview, they come to suspect that a woman is traveling to the United States specifically to give birth, according to State Department officials. A rather interesting Phenomenon. Well, the Supreme Court on Monday allowed the Trump administration to enforce a new rule that will deny green cards to foreign nationals who use taxpayer funded social services, lifting lower court injunctions that blocked the change. Well, the 5-4 vote followed fa- familiar ideological lines with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan in dissent. The Immigration and Nationality Act, or INA, dictates that foreign nationals shouldn't receive green cards if they're likely at any time to become a public charge. At issue in the case on Monday is the definition of public charge. Now, in recent years, that term was defined as a person primarily dependent on a cash assistance program. Well, the Trump administration promulgated a new rule back in August of last year that expands that definition to include those likely to use non-cash benefit programs like Medicaid, food stamps or housing benefits for a period of months. Well, the rule doesn't apply to humanitarian migrants like refugees or asylum seekers, but does to everyone else. Throughout our history, self-reliance has been a core principle in America. Then acting director of U.S. Citizen and Immigration Services, Ken Cuccinelli, said in a, of the new policy during a 2019 White House press conference, the virtues of perseverance, hard work and self-sufficiency rather, laid the foundation of our nation and have defined generations of immigrants seeking opportunity in the United States. Well, immigrant rights groups say that the rule will um, have a discriminatory effect and warn that it deters migrants lawfully in the United States from applying for needed social services. Well, U.S. District Judge George Daniels issued a pair of injunctions against the rule about after two separate plaintiffs, the city of New York and a coalition of three states, brought lawsuits challenging the change. The second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed that decision, prompting the government's emergency application to the Supreme Court. Well, the Supreme Court has now ruled. A congressman from Arizona and a senator from Louisiana have introduced legislation that would require that all abortion providers have admitting privileges at a local hospital and comply with basic safety standards. Now, it seems kind of like a no-brainer, but this is a controversial issue. Abortion providers refuse to accept the reality that an abortion is a serious medical procedure that should be treated with the same care and caution as any other surgery or medical treatment. That's a quote from Representative Andy Biggs in a statement provided uh, on this legislation. He introduced the legislation with Senator John Kennedy, a Republican from Louisiana, 
uh, said that it would ensure women who would get the best possible care in the event of complications from an abortion. The companion bills are H.R. 5662 and S3226. Women deserve to have doctors and medical professionals who can provide quality care and quickly address any complications that may arise. The Arizona lawmaker said requiring doctors and abortion providers to have hospital admitting privileges and to maintain safe and clean clinics should be measured uh, measures that face little opposition. Well, specifically, Biggs Kennedy legislation requires that a doctor performing an abortion have admitting privileges at a hospital located within 15 minutes from the principal medical office of the physician and the location in which the abortion is being performed. Planned Parenthood has called hospital admitting privilege requirements unfair and medically unnecessary. Well, the bill would also require the physician to inform the woman undergoing the procedure where the hospital is located so she can access follow-up care in the event of complications. Conviction for failure to do so by the doctor performing the procedure could result in fines and prison time. Well, in a statement provided to uh, the Daily Signal, Mr. Kennedy uh, said the legislation, the Pregnant Woman Health and Safety Act of 2020, is the baseline for what expected mothers deserve. It's hard to imagine someone more in need of access to quality medical care than an expectant mother and her unborn child, the Louisiana lawmaker said. But, of course, in an abortion The welfare of the unborn child is certainly not uh, paramount. The abortion industry, he went on to say, cuts corners at the expense of vulnerable people and the Pregnant Women Health and Safety Act would ensure that women have easy access to vital protective care. I'm thankful to partner with my friend Andy Biggs in this effort and to save and improve lives and encourage my colleagues in um, both chambers of Congress to support this legislation. Well, we just learned that uh, top U.S. health officials this week provided further details on the nation's coordinated public health response to the China-linked coronavirus rather, that killed more than 100 people and sickened thousands of others worldwide. Well, during a news conference on Tuesday, which included U.S. Health Secretary Alex Azar, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Robert Redfield, National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Disease Director Nancy Meisner, and National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases Director Anthony Fauci, Officials said the outbreak is a potentially very serious public health threat in the U.S., but the current risk to America remains low. To date, there are five confirmed cases of the novel virus in the U.S. Well, Azar said the Chinese have refused continued offers from the U.S. to send CDC officials to the country to help with the outbreak response. The offer was first made on the 6th of January, he said, adding U.S. officials have continued to urge more transparency from the country as the disease spreads. This is a major public health issue, and we need the best public health people in the world right now. However, Azar noted that China's overall response has been significantly better when compared to their response during the deadly outbreak of severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS, in 2002-2003. At that time, China... Uh, was accused of covering up the outbreak, which wasn't announced to the public until about five months after it began. Well, in recent weeks, Chinese government officials have said they've learned from past mistakes. Top officials have reportedly warned lower-level officials to not cover up the spread of the new coronavirus, which has been linked to an animal and seafood market in the city of Wuhan and is now said to be transmittable between humans. Coming up, we're going to talk with Tom Jipping. He's deputy director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He's also a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We'll take a look at the lethal legal legacy of Roe versus Wade, the 47th anniversary of which took place just last week. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As you know, last week marked the anniversary, the 47th anniversary of the infamous Roe versus Wade, Doe versus Bolton decisions made by the Supreme Court, legalizing abortion on demand all across the fruited plain. We also recognized Sanctity of Life Day. The president, for the first time in American history, attended the March for Life. There was a lot going on. We had events here in our area as well. So a lot of attention has been focused on the infamous decision that changed everything. Now, I should point out that in the state of Oregon, even if Roe versus Wade were overturned, we were one of the few and early states that allowed abortion on demand. And sadly, that is part of our uh, state legacy. But one of uh, my guests uh, has written an, an article on the lethal legacy of um, Roe versus Wade that goes beyond just the decision itself. And it's, it's an excellent article. In fact, I'll post it on the Facebook page. He wrote it for the Washington Examiner to help give us some perspective on uh, this lethal legal legacy of Roe versus Wade. Tom Jipping joins us. He's deputy director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. You write that the Supreme Court's decision in Roe versus Wade rendered exactly 47 years ago, has become a type of death star traveling through our legal and cultural universe, destroying everything in its path. Never has a single decision with so many flaws and such a grisly result gained such dominance over so many. And the article really focuses on the fallout from Roe versus Wade, that if uh, abortion on demand was not bad enough, impacts so many other things that we need to see it in the broader context and what has, uh, what has come in its wake. Yeah, we, we really do. I mean, most people obviously do focus on the result, and that's been a horrible thing. The idea that uh, killing children is some sort of constitutional right uh, will never make sense to me, and, and it's contrary to basic values, I think, of, of the, the world over. But it's the, it's the means, it's the, the path that the court took, it's how the court arrived at that result that actually is the most toxic uh, result of Roe versus Wade. When you have, you know, a few members of the Supreme Court taking a look at our Constitution, not being satisfied with it, and basically making up a new one so that they can do what they want to do, that truly tells you that a majority of the Supreme Court is running the country. And that is the absolute enemy of our liberty and of uh, all of the fundamentals of our political system. So, as bad as that result is, the way the court achieved it uh, is much worse. Yeah. You write that every Supreme Court decision has a judgment and an opinion. A judgment decides the case while the opinion explaining the judgment becomes a precedent affecting many other cases involving many other issues far into the future. And that is precisely what we see with Roe versus Wade. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of different ways of, of looking at that. Uh, and, and this issue of how much power judges are supposed to have is a very important one. Uh, are judges supposed to decide the case before them and, and therefore limit, you know, the, the sort of unintended consequences of their decisions? Or, or can judges just give these, these wide open uh, new interpretations of the Constitution that go way beyond what's necessary for the case before them? And it's, it's almost like then uh, the ripple effect where these uh, bad precedents go out and, and lawyers take a hold of them and use them for all sorts of mischief. That Roe versus Wade decision 
finding a right that simply doesn't exist in the Constitution has been cited and used for all sorts of terrible results uh, in the years since. And judges are simply not supposed to have that much power. No matter what you believe about abortion itself, whether you think it ought to be legal or illegal, uh, we all ought to agree that it's not judges who are supposed to make that up and force it upon us. We're supposed to decide those issues for ourselves. Now, isn't it uh, true that lawmakers have oftentimes, when they're unable to persuade the public or unwilling to take the political risk to move in a particular direction, um, that they have often uh, ceded their authority to the courts, recognizing that they can accomplish there what they could not accomplish legislatively uh, and with the, the, the people uh, agreeing to a, a particular action? Oh, they, they do. Uh, politicians, and, and I think we have too many politicians and not enough statesmen, I yes. think, serving in our legislatures. They, they turn to two places in our government that are not elected by the people. They turn to judges in the judicial branch, and they turn to bureaucrats in the executive branch, neither one of whom have any accountability to the people. And frankly, decisions like Roe versus Wade, where the Supreme Court signals, look, we're willing to, you know, to do your job for you. We're willing to make things up in order to, you know, implement a political agenda. Uh, Frankly, that looks pretty appealing for weak politicians who either don't have the guts to uh, to do that kind of thing themselves or who just want to stay in office and not be held accountable for anything. When judges, you know, uh, who, of course, serve for life, when they say they're willing to do it, there's too many politicians who are willing to let them. Yeah, yeah. Again, in your column, The Lethal Legal Legacy of Roe versus Wade, you write, America's founders designed a system of government in which, founder James Wilson explained, the people are masters of government. They set rules for government in a constitution, writing it down so that those rules, um, uh, Marbury versus Madison tells us, may be neither mistaken nor forgotten. Those rules the Supreme Court set apply as much to courts as to legislators. But Roe versus Wade, in that decision, the Supreme Court turned all of that on its head, as you have described. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, our our system of government is, uh, I mean, there's a lot to it, but it really isn't that complicated. We, the people, those are the first three words of the Constitution, we are supposed to be in charge of government, not the other way around, and judges are part of the government. And, And the way that, you know, we do that is, frankly, to set rules for government. We use the Constitution to do it. Well, you know, think of a, think of a baseball game. If, if the players could tell you we're in charge of what the rules are, it would be absolute chaos. Instead, you're supposed to have a rule book that everyone reads, everyone understands, and everybody plays by. The Constitution is no different. Whatever your politics, uh, government is supposed to follow our rules, not the other way around. Again, you quote uh, Justice Benjamin Curtis in the uh, Dred Scott decision, uh, Dred Scott versus Sanford dissenting opinion. And he wrote that when the theoretical opinions of individuals rather than fixed rules control the Constitution, we have no longer a Constitution. We are under the government of individual men who, for the time being, have power to declare what the Constitution is according to their own views of what it ought to mean. Now, that's sort of a popular idea these days, both among lawmakers and some who sit on the bench. Yeah, it, it is. And yet, you know, that Dred Scott decision was in the middle of the 19th century. So this is not a new issue. Mm-hmm. This, this, this issue of how much power judges should have 
whether they control the Constitution or they should follow the Constitution. This was very much part of the, the debates at America's founding. It was, uh, you know, obviously an issue in the middle of the 19th century. It is certainly an issue today. And, uh, you know, uh, again, we, we ought to have a consensus. We need a consensus about the fundamentals of our system of government. And then if we agree on that, we can certainly disagree on all kinds of political issues. But if we don't, you know, get together and, and have what lawyers call a meeting of the minds about the basics, the building blocks of our system of government, we're going to lose what has given us so much freedom and liberty in the past. Again, you write, though Roe versus Wade stands for the destruction of the system of government America's founders gave us, slavish devotion to it has, in certain political circles, become a condition for achieving public office and a litmus test for being appointed to the federal bench. Even the possibility that a judicial nominee might be tempted to question a decision so at odds with the design for the judiciary is enough to incite the destructive tendencies of the left. It has been elevated to the point... Um, that it is a, it is just that a litmus test as to who has the uh, the the privilege of seeking or being appointed to uh, an office, whether that's in the judiciary or, for that matter, um, in the legislative branch. Yeah, th- those are examples of how toxic Roe versus Wade and, and decisions like it, but especially that one, how toxic it is. It it, it uh, didn't just follow uh, an activist path to a to a grisly result. But it, it has you know, damaged everything that it touches. Uh, the idea that you have to somehow, that, that a judicial nominee has to promise uh, to, to uh, support this awful decision in order to become a federal judge, that, that's not even consistent with the impartiality that we expect in our judges. And so this thing has become uh, just a rotten part of our legal and cultural uh, system. And, you know, we ought to get rid of it as soon as we have the opportunity because it's done so much damage to the rule of law, uh, to our system of government, uh, and to our culture. Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Tim Jipping or Tom Jipping. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Again, Tom Jipping is deputy director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He concludes his uh, column by writing, it's more than abortion at stake here. It's liberty itself. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with James Merritt. He is the author of Character Still Counts. It's kind of good to know. Character Still Counts. It is time to restore our lasting values. The uh, book is published by Harvest House. Also on uh, Thursday, we'll talk with Jenny Donnelly. She's the author of Still, Seven Ways to Find Calm in the Chaos. We'll also talk with uh, Dan Kramer, Executive Director of Strategic Programs at Wycliffe Bible Translators. Looking forward to talking with him about the role that persecution is playing in efforts to translate the scriptures into uh, native languages. Dan Kramer will also join us on Thursday. I'm really looking forward uh, to that update. Well, now for something completely different. We've talked off and on about service animals and how the definition of uh, what constitutes a service animal and under what circumstances that service animal is allowed in places where animals previously would not be permitted. Uh, We talked, I think, on a Friday a week or so ago about service bees that a guy actually applied to have his bees 
um, categorized as a uh, an acceptable service animal. I think he was trying to make a point, but point made. Well, service animals would fa- also face some new restrictions under a new Department of Transportation rule that could ban emotional support animals on planes. It's a proposal at this point, but airlines may no longer be required to fly passengers' emotional support animals, according to these new proposed rules by the federal government. Um, That came up on um, uh, Wednesday last. Well, if the U.S. Department of Transportation's new rules are enacted, airlines will only be required to allow certain service animals on board. And whether or not they accept emotional support animals will be up to each individual carrier. Again, that's according to the Department of Transportation. Well, under the new rules, and again, this is a proposal, the definition of a service animal would also be tightened to a dog that is individually trained to do work or tasks for a passenger with disabilities, including physical, mental, or sensory disabilities. Any service animal that is not a dog, including a miniature horse, that have traditionally always been approved, will not be admitted on board according to these new rules. Now, it seems reasonable to me. I think it's uh, important to try to have as much sympathy for those who rely on uh, legitimate service animals, but some of them, it's just untenable to imagine uh, having them flying with other passengers for reasons I won't go into. Well, according to the Department of Transportation official on a conference call with the media, and therefore... um, uh, uh, just being made available, but unofficial. If it's an emotional support animal that just by being there makes me feel better, then it's not trained to do work or perform tasks. If uh, flyers have a psychiatric service dog that performs tasks related to anxiety, depression, or other mental health conditions, those animals, along with dogs who help passengers with physical or sensory disabilities, will still be allowed on board. Passengers who lie and try to pass off emotional support or other animals as service animals will be committing a federal crime and could be punished by a fine, prison time, or both, taking it a little more seriously. In order to prove that a dog is a service animal before a flight, passengers with disabilities will be given new documents at check-in to certify the dog is healthy and safe and it has proper training to complete tasks for the passenger. Service dogs can be trained by the owner or a third-party organization, and passengers will not need additional proof beyond signing the Department of Transportation and Airlines forms, confirming that the dog is properly trained as a service animal. Now, again, I'm wondering if people are going to be as honest about that as they should be. Airlines will not be able to ask for service animal documentation in advance of the flight, will not be able to. Uh, The rules state that carriers can only ask passengers with service dogs to check in one hour early. Lying on the form will be considered a federal crime. Now, how you prove that they have lied on a form... Uh, it's it's not clear. In recent years, airlines have uh, struggled to control the influx of animals brought on board as emotional support animals. In fact, I'm struck not just on airplanes by animals who are allowed in grocery stores, in restaurants, in places. And I'm not talking about legitimate service animals, but just pets that people like to have with them. In 2017, Delta alone flew 250,000 emotional support animals. That's up 150 percent from 2015. Passengers have tried to pass off everything from peacocks, snakes, penguins, even kangaroos as creatures that are essential to fly with them at their plane seats, not in the cargo hold, but with them in the uh, cabin. When there are abuses in the system, if people with disabilities, it's people with disabilities who suffer, the Department of Transportation official says, noting that the number of complaints the department received about airline service animals was steadily increasing every year. 
I think I would need to have an emotional support, something that's a non-animal if I were seated next to someone who had one. Most carriers have tried to tighten their own policies with some like the United Airlines, restricting emotional support animals allowed on board to just dogs and cats and service animals to dogs, cats and miniature horses. Miniature horses, I don't see how that works. But airlines previously could not have a blanket ban on registered emotional support animals in the cabin. Miniature horses specifically were removed as service animals from the proposal because they're not as flexible as dogs. The Department of uh, Transportation says, and therefore can't fit easily under seats. Uh, The move will put the Air Carrier Access Act, which governs rights for flyers with disabilities, in line with the broader Americans with Disabilities Act, which only recognizes dogs as service animals. Also, the new regulations say that airlines, they have to accept all breeds of service dogs and would not be able to ban any particular dog breed if they have the required training and their behavior is deemed safe and healthy by gate agents and cabin crew. Pitbull, service animal, allowed on board. I, on the other hand, would be taking Greyhound. For now, the new rules are only a proposal and not yet uh, in effect. Federal officials are going to open up two aspects of the regulation for comments from the general public for the next 60 days. Anybody can submit comments on the rule that limits accepted service animals to just dogs, as well as the rule that allows all breeds of dogs on board. To submit a comment, you can go to the page for the proposed rule on the Department of Transportation's website. Federal officials are going to gather and review those comments, change the rules as necessary. The regulators uh, regulators rather say it's too early to tell when or even if the rules might be passed and put in place. We'll continue to follow that story if or as it develops. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with James Merritt. Character still counts. It's time to restore our lasting values. I want to thank James Blind for producing and Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.